Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Well, thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And if you're a first timer, welcome aboard. So excited to welcome back the retired or semi-retired. He's still doing a little bit of stuff, but uh, Houston Chronicle columnist and longtime reporter Dale Robertson. Now you're retired from the sports side, but you're still sipping wine occasionally and, and, and writing about it. Well, you can't retire if you can't retire from wine because you love, I love to drink it. So I figured as long as I'm going to be drinking it, I might as well write about it. I, you know, I don't, I don't need to go through two a days and I haven't tackled anybody in years. So I can, I can walk away from football, but uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be fun to watch it uh, as, as a civilian and as a fan going forward. Why'd you throw in the towel after 46 years? <sighs> Because I'm old. <laughs> well, actually, I think the forty the forty six years pretty well sums it up. I'm not I'm not sure that uh, there was a whole lot left for me to accomplish. You know, personally, uh, professionally, uh, would have been fun maybe to have picked up an NFL championship. Um, uh, got to at least work through a couple NBA championships, and then thankfully the Astros uh, got there. Although ironically, I'll, I'll never uh, this will always kind of stick in my craw. I had absolutely nothing to do with the World Series because. The entire department, sports department of the Chronicle was dealing with the Astros. So I ended up on the road writing a column on the Texans game in Seattle. <laughs> so I did not see a single World Series game in, uh, in 2017. I unfortunately saw all four of them in 2005, though. Yeah, yeah, that, that's too bad. Well, take me back to the beginning because you grew up in El Paso, right? Yeah, and, and where did your passion for sports start? When I was a kid, uh, I, I played, of course, played everything. Uh, Figured out very early on I was not meant to be a football player, but I had a decent jump shot and uh, could, could throw a baseball pretty well and hit a little bit. So, you know, played varsity sports and basketball and baseball through the end of uh, high school. But my uh, my mother was an English teacher at the same high school I attended, Austin High School. My dad was a tech writer for the Army. So you can kind of see how somebody might have been exposed to writing and wanting oh, yeah. to write. And, sure. and my father was a pretty forceful guy. And I don't know if anybody's ever ever told their son this, but he said, you are going to be a sports writer. And I was a little bit afraid of him, so I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, for somebody who, of course, loved sports as a, as a participant and, of course, as a, as a kid, a fan, I mean, I absolutely worshipped Willie Mays, for example. I, I, no kidding, as a freshman at the University of Houston, I walked from the University of Houston campus to the Astrodome because I didn't have any money to get a taxi to watch Willie Mays play. I mean, that, that that's how bad it was in the fall of 1970. So... Obviously, as I've evolved as a journalist, maybe became a little bit less of a fan, but I've never lost my appreciation for the the art and the science of sport. And uh, and I, I'll miss not being in, in the scrum on a daily basis. Besides Willie, who were your guys growing up? Who, uh, you, you, who were your Johnny, teams? Johnny, 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 you, Johnny Unitas, uh, the, the terrible front runner here, but love the Celtics. Oh yeah, love the Celtics. Who couldn't love the this Celtics? This is back right? in the Russell and the all the championships, right? Well, you know, other than other than Willie Mays, I mean, my heroes tended to be guys that won. Obviously, I fell in love with, uh, and, and this is this is no kidding. The famous sudden death game against the Giants, Colts, Giants, nineteen fifty eight, the game that kind of the NFL, modern NFL, was probably invented that day, is literally my first memory of watching the National Football League on television on a bad small black and white television in my living room in El Paso, Texas. So I woke up the next morning. I love the Baltimore Colts. And I love Johnny Unitas. <laughs> <laughs> you went to school at the University of Houston, and when you retired, you wrote about and explained why you ended up there. Uh, tell me that story again. Well, uh, I'd taken a couple of family vacations in Houston. I liked the place. I was here in the summer of 65 when the Astronome opened, got to see a couple of Astros games, thought that was pretty cool. 
But the turning point was the University of Houston's uh, basketball game against UCLA, which I watched you know, in my living room in El Paso as a sophomore in high school. And you had already maybe become a fan of uh, college basketball with, you know, you were right there yeah, with well, the Don Haskins team. Yeah, if you, if you want to talk about, you know, becoming a rabid fan, it would have been, you know, uh, my dad and I had season tickets for Texas Western College uh, starting in like 1960, 61. I mean, I was just, I was eight, eight years old. And when they go on to win the national championship in 1966, I actually sat down and wrote a story about it. So maybe you know, all this sports writing stuff was germinating. But that, that, that was a very, um, you know, it, it obviously it happened at, a, at an interesting point in our history as a country. So it was fascinating to me. I was, you know, ex, you know extremely proud of that team. We didn't have a lot of racial turmoil in El Paso, frankly. It, it, it was, all, most of my friends were Hispanic, but I didn't know any African-Americans. So they're... It was just it was it was a very interesting thing. I was well aware of the civil rights movement. My father was, you know, pretty passionate about it. So, to see that happen and happen at the expense of, uh, you know, uh, Adolph Rupp and his all-white uh, Kentucky team had a very huge impression on me beyond being a sport a sports fan. But I said I said something something really important has happened today. So that was that was huge. But as far as getting me to Houston, I was a huge UCLA fan. Because I was a front runner. Yeah, yeah. Unrepentant, unrepentant front runner. <laughs> yeah, who, who couldn't love John Wooden, right? So anyway, but watch that game, and when it was over, I, I, I'll never forget this. You know, there's no lights. On. Only light in the room was the TV and my father, the tip of my father's cigarette. <laughs> and he looked at me, and said, "Well, why don't you? Why don't you go to the University of Houston?" And I said, "I think I will." And that that's that's the truth. That that's it. That's it. And I have to say, when I landed landed a gig as a, a sports reporter as a freshman at UH for the Daily Cougar, one of my first one-on-one interviews with anybody was with Guy Lewis. And to walk into his office, I mean, you talk about somebody who looked ten feet tall to you. That was Guy Lewis, and I love that man forever because he treated me with infinitely more respect and kindness than I deserved as a as a punk kid coming in from the Daily Cougar to ask him questions. I'll never forget that. I want to get back to Guy Lewis a little bit yeah, later, sure. but I, I I want to talk to you because you uh, went to U of H in what year was this? Fall, I enrolled in the fall of 1970. Okay, so you uh, fall of 1970 was just like two months after the moon landing. We're, we're celebrating this year. Well, a year, it was a year after. Yeah, it was a year, 60, okay. 60, no, year yeah, after. Year, I'm sorry, a year after. So we're celebrating. So you were senior. Do you remember that? Well, I'm embarrassed to say uh, when the moon land was happening and, and my my dad was really mad at me for this. I was actually a couple blocks away. I had the key. I had the keys to my middle school gym and I was over there shooting baskets. I thought it was more important <laughs> that I get a workout in than watch the moon landing. Now, had I known uh, what my basketball future held, I'm sure I would have watched the moon landing. But I thought it was more important to shoot baskets at. Was there anybody else around? No, it was, was me. Me by myself in the gym <laughs> shooting. I mean, crazy, crazy. Oh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> so you started out at the late, great Houston po- Post. And, and how old were you when you started at that post? Well, I was uh, I, I just turned 20 and... Uh, it was the kind of situation you would never see happen today, but uh, I, I had uh, worked uh, as a part-timer the previous year, endeared myself to the sports editor, a gentleman by the name of John Hollis, just because I I, I always said yes. I, you know, I took criticism, and if he asked me to do something, I did it. And sometimes I would ask, Mr. Hollis, can I do something else? And he liked that. You know, he was he was as old school as they come, and he liked my enthusiasm. He thought I had some, you know, thought I had had some kind of a future. So yeah, I got hired on at right at the start of my junior year at UH as a full time employee with benefits and a pension plan. Think about that. 
That's pretty nice. But, but you're going to love this. Like two weeks in, uh, he called me little redheaded boy. <laughs> he said, hey, little redheaded boy, run down to the convenience store. You know, we're in the Chronicle. The Chronicle's in that building now. There's still a convenience store down on Newcastle, two blocks away. He says, give me a six-pack of beer, please. And I, yeah, I know he probably should not have been ordering a six-pack of beer while we were still working in the evening, but it was a different time, okay? Yeah, a different time, and you set me up perfectly because <laughs> just I'm going to set up the Houston Post. It started, for our younger listeners, it started in 1880, closed up shop in 95, 115 years altogether. And when you joined, they were going through a, a long period with the legendary Hobby family who also yeah, started sure. uh, 950 AM KPRC, Houston's first radio station. That led, of course, to the purchase of the TV station, which became KPRC Channel 2. But take me into the newsroom at the Houston Post when you arrived. I'm, I'm imagining smoke-filled newsrooms and the clacking of typewriters and that kind of thing. Well, it's funny. Had I taken a job at the Chronicle, and they, 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 they were interested as well, that's exactly what you would have gotten. Because the Chronicle building in uh, 1972, down the Chronicle building downtown, uh, that I ultimately worked in was right out of the right out of the uh, front page uh, musical from the 1920s. <laughs> it was a dump. It was dirty. It was it was it was dark. It was smoky. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Houston Post building, which is now the Houston Chronicle building, had only been had only been opened in 1969. We had these huge windows and view of what was going to become the gallery and all of that. Look, great sunsets. And I was going. Well, no, I mean, was flip a coin. No, I mean, you kidding me? Where, where would you want to work? <laughs> this beautiful new building. So, no, it was, and, and they, they, and they forced us to keep it clean because it was a brand new building. Now, having said that, at night it still turned into Animal House, like I'm sure it did at the Chronicle. But <laughs> as long as Mrs. Hobby was around, everything was pretty clean and pretty proper. And for people that don't remember, you know, how, how were you getting stories in? You know, what was the process, just compared to? you know, what you dealt the last few years with the... Well, the, uh, the the national copy came in from the Associated Press on these clickety-clack uh, uh, wire machines, made, made a ton of noise, and occasionally they would fail. So if you're working the desk that night, then there were no stories because nothing was coming, and that, that created a lot of consternation. We, of course, typed on manual typewriters, and uh, most of my colleagues smoked. So, yes, there was smoke everywhere. And there were a lot, even in our new building, that a lot of the desk edges had the burned edges because nobody wanted, reporters on deadline didn't use ashtrays. So the cigarette sat and burned into the desk. It was, it was hilarious, very different world. But it was just, you know, you know to file a story, the first, first uh, college football game I covered was Texas Tech Baylor in 1970, in the, in the fall of 72. I mean, I would, I would type a page on my little Olivetti and I would pull it out and I'd go copy, I'd hold, it up, hold a piece of paper up in the air. And, and, and a guy operating a Western Union machine would come over and take it and retype it into the Western Union machine one page at a time. So it took, you know, it took 30 to 40 minutes to transmit a football story, game story. Yeah, it, it changed quite a bit over the years. Yeah. And, and, and was is Mickey Herskowitz there at that time? Uh, Mickey uh, was actually, when I started at the Post, was our, he was our front page columnist. You know, he, he had built his career at the Post as a uh, young, young sports writer, uh, as young as me. He started, uh, his story was very similar to mine, except in the 1950s instead of the 1970s. Uh, but he also went off and became the first PR director for the American Football League. He and Al Davis had become pals. So Mickey disappeared for a while, but when he returned to Houston in uh, the early 1970s, it was as a city, city columnist, our lead columnist in the newspaper. So the only time I ever worked with Mickey as a, as, as a sports writer really was uh, at the Chronicle when he was writing one column a week uh, in the 90s. 
Yeah, because he, if I remember correctly, because I talked to him on the show a few years ago, and he was telling me how uh, there was a point where he helped bring the the rockets to Houston. Ricky was uh, Mickey was a big part of it. He was he even had some, he even had some money in it. Mickey Mickey had done very well writing books, uh, the Cosell book, uh, Dan Rather's book. Um, Mickey was a part owner of the Houston Rockets when they moved here. He was telling me his big reason how they ended up here because he was trying to get a football team to, to Houston as well. Yeah, no, Mickey Mickey's one of the you know he's on my he's on my Mount Olympus. Let's just leave, let's just put it at that. Yeah, he's he's incredible. And uh, go go back and listen to those shows if you haven't heard them. And in, in 1972, after three seasons. With the Oilers, uh, Charlie Joyner gets traded to San Diego. He goes to three po- three Pro Bowls, uh, 12,000 yards in 76. The Oilers draft Steve Largent in the fourth round, but then they trade him after four seasons. So, or after four preseason games, I should say. You saw Dan Pastorini in those early years with the Oilers when you got to the Houston Post, and he, he's struggling to do anything those first few years before Love You Blue. What would it have meant for him to have those two guys Largent and Joyner in those first few years. Well, it would have, meant, would have meant a great deal, but the Oilers were a truly bad organization. And the only thing that actually fixed the Oilers, uh, obviously ultimately hiring Sid Gilman just to kind of clean up the mess. And, of course, it was Sid Gilman who was responsible for Bum Phillips. But let, let's, let's not kid ourselves. If they, don't land, if they don't get Earl Campbell in 1978, I'm not sure that franchise would have ever done anything. So Earl, Earl was the complete turning point in the history of the Houston Oilers. I, I, I don't I don't know that the, the receiver certainly would have made Dan better, and so would a better offensive line. But Earl Earl changed everything, just changed everything. And to this day, you know, I you talk about your Mount, Mount Olympus guys. I mean, it's him and Akeem, and then everybody else falls in after that. So. And Dan was kind of wild in his early days too. Dan so. was kind of wild in his later days. Yeah, <laughs> he isn't he? Isn't anymore? He finally finally conceded, like all of us do. But no. Uh, the guy, guy, the guy had the strongest, strongest arm I've ever seen on a quarterback. I, I, I've never seen anybody throw a football like Dan Pastor, and he could throw a football. Yeah, you might be talking about off the field. I was talking about accuracy on the field with Dan, but um, you know, you, you look but, at no, you understand something. He played with on some really bad teams. By the time I started covering Dan, uh, I mean, he, he, he was, he was, he was a little bit psychologically damaged. Yeah, I mean, because he pl- he really played on some bad teams. Like, and I, you go back and see, you know, watch, watch some of the, the let's talk about grainy films of he just took a absolutely awful beating. It, it was David Carr, basically. But, worse, yeah, it was <laughs> actually worse. It was worse than Carr. That <laughs> that is bad. Oh, you can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> what were the early Rockets days like? Because they just started around that time you got started. Well, my my favorite Rockets story. I was still working for the Daily Cougar, and I called the, uh, uh, the, the their their chief publicist and. I forget, I forget the gentleman's name. And I said, hey, I'm the sports editor of the Daily Cougar, and I'd, li- I'd like to come out uh, to watch. The- they used to play Sunday afternoon games, of all things, at Hoffines Pavilion. And I said, I'd like to come out and do an interview afterwards in the locker room, but I'd like to come and uh, bring a friend just to watch the game. Would that be possible, sir? And he said, kid, could you, could you bring six or eight? I said, what, what do you mean? He says, so I, 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 if, you, if you can bring eight bodies, I'll give you eight tickets. Yeah, I saw where that, that was coming. Or that I was mean, going. They literally drew 11,000, 1,200 people to those games. Yeah, and, and so you, after rooting for all of these fantastic teams growing up to the Celtics and, the, and Johnny Unitas and, and UCLA, you're in Houston, and it, it's a bunch of bad. It must have oh, been well, kind I mean, of depressing. Even, uh, I mean, even look at look at the Astros. You know, they did they didn't make the playoffs to 1980. That was yeah, exactly. Was Ten years after I got here, and 18 years after the franchise was born. So, writing at that point, you were learning how to make 
what wasn't interesting, interesting, really. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, I was just trying to prove that I deserved a job as a snot-nosed kid. I mean, I, I, I wasn't all that concerned about what was happening on the field. I was just hoping that I was interpreting it well. And my, my first writing beat was covering Texas Southern when uh, Dr. Rod Page was the uh, head coach. Again, one of, my, one, of, one of my greatest memories. You know, you understand, uh, you know, you know we, we weren't too far removed from seriously, administratively, you know, endorsed segregation in Houston. And, and I'm out at TSU now. And again, the, the kindness and the respect I was shown out there. And that, that, that was exactly the way I should have started my career. That was a, a very, very memorable season. I did well enough on that beat to be assigned to cover the original Houston Texans, and maybe three or four of whom your listeners would have ever heard of. And so that was my first experience with pro, pro, pro sports, and I use the word pro loosely there because talk about <laughs> I think the orders were screwed up. You should have seen the original Houston Texans. Yeah, World Football League. A lot of fun, a lot of fun. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I wasn't around the Astros much. In fact, I never did. I, I, I was never either a Rockets or an Astros beat guy. I only, only started hanging out with them when I became a columnist, which was until – uh, 1983. So this is going to be interesting because there's a lot of what ifs in Houston sports history. And I want to get maybe let's get your biggest what if in Houston sports. And I'm going to throw out some choices if this helps you. Uh, there's a bunch with the Oilers. So you got the the Mike Renfro catch, uh, Pastorini not getting traded after the 79 season. What happens, you know, to the Oilers there? Bum Phillips not getting fired, uh, Ralph Sampson's injury and the Rockets' drug suspensions of the 80s, J.R. Richards' stroke, uh, Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady's breakdown, Chris Paul's hamstring, you know, just last year. Uh, is, is there a biggest what-if for you? If you're asking, asking me to choose, I would say all of the above. I mean, you just brought back some, you brought back some very, very sad memories there, Robert. <laughs> is there very one I sad memories. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I – because I was I was joined at the hip with the Oilers, uh, you know, in, in in the Levy Blue era. I mean, you you go back to the Renfro catch. If you look at the way the game played out structurally, it it still probably wouldn't have made a difference. But you don't know what kind of difference it would have made psychologically. And and the reason I, I say that had to do with what happened in the re- last regular season game that year, uh, Monday night game in the Astros. Every, everybody thinks the greatest Oilers game in history was the Miami game when Earl ran for 199 yards and four touchdowns. Nope. The greatest Oilers game ever was the 1979 December, the early December Monday night game in Houston, because that night the Oilers won, but they didn't just win. I mean, they they frightened the Steelers that night. They just beat the Steelers up. The Steelers at that point are saying, "Okay, all right, this isn't this isn't the Houston Oilers we remember even from last season." So they had the Steelers undivided attention that that after that game and the game was close in the afc championship game still the last time any team in this town has played for conference championship and the renfro catch counted okay now now it is a one score game you know ultimately the orders did nothing the rest of the way were that were they broken were the spirit broken you know who knows you know we can analyze the psychology of all this till the cows come home but that that would be you know for the Oilers to have gotten to a super bowl at that stage in our history would have been huge and maybe that and of course that changes that, a lot that of changes that. pastorini's fate maybe bum's obviously fate. pastorini is not going to be traded yeah obviously uh you don't fire bum the next year uh, although bud adams was a pretty was a pretty sorry human being so it's anything he did was not necessarily surprising especially if it was wrong <laughs> and, and and maybe the Oilers are still. I mean, it's, it's a huge domino because the Oilers could have never left. And that, that well, I, yeah, that's it. I mean, obviously, you blame the Oilers leaving on on the what ifs of the Buffalo the Buffalo game and the, the Joe Montana game in the Astrodome. There's no question 
if one of those teams had gone to the Super Bowl, in my mind, that the city and, and the orders would have worked out something on, on, on a new stadium. There's no, but by the time Bud started asking for the stadium, they were in the process of a 2-14 and 14 free fall. And, 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 and both basically, uh, you know, Bob Lanier said, just, hey, Bud, don't let the door hit you in the ass. I'm, I, this conversation's over. Yeah, three straight years where you were just devastated just, at the playoff just plucked, just plucked from <laughs> plucked from you. So that big, huge what if there, of course. I mean, I, you know, I think it's, you know, it would have been better for the had the older state and we didn't, you know, move, segue into another franchise. And the Texans have been fine. But, of course, they haven't enjoyed, in my opinion, nearly as much success as a team should have over the amount of time they've been here. But. I'm going to go throw out, just name some all-time Houston sports personalities, and I'm going to make you rack your brain a little bit and come up with maybe a it's story. It's going to be hard. I don't have a lot of brain left, Robert. <laughs> come up with a story that, that, that comes to mind or, or whatever you can conjure up. Let's start with maybe the most important figure in Houston sports history, Judge Roy Hoffines. Yeah, I never got, never got to know the judge, and that, that's a regret because I, you know I, I was working professionally while he was still a major player, but... Needless to say, every every city, every business has has a select group of visionaries. He he dreamed something that almost everybody else at the time said, "Judge, you're crazy." But he said, "No, we can do this, and this will change everything." And and he somehow made it happen. So yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's there. He's there right there on Mount Mount Rushmore too. Mount Olympus, take 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 your mountain pick. But yeah, he. I mean, without the Astrodome, I, I don't know that Houston could have ever because you, you simply couldn't play baseball here in the summertime outside. You just couldn't. It wasn't going to work, and I think the franchise would have failed and moved. You know, I think that's obvious. But, of course, there was never any doubt in the judge's mind it was going to get built. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of modern modern sports in Houston, 1965, is the that, that's the tipping point. You got to give Bud, you know, Bud some credit, too, for getting involved in the American Football League. You know, if he doesn't do that, Houston can't be invited to join the National Football League 10 years later, obviously. That's my next guy, Bud Adams. I mean, you've got to have a ton of Bud Adams stories over the years. None of them I even want to share with your readers. I mean, you know, again, I covered I covered his team for years and never had a relationship with him. I mean, you know, he, I, 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 I didn't I didn't have very, very high opinion of Bud and awful lot of people didn't either. But give him his due. He got a team here and he did win. You know, and then you can argue he screwed it up pretty quickly, and he never, never, Bud never really quite got it right. Strangest thing that you heard him do of, of, of all the weird stuff? I mean, I mean, we know the headline stuff of guys that he fired or whatever, but what, was there anything behind the scenes that you heard just like this is this is odd even for Bud? <laughs> well, my my favorite is you know only because he kind of set the stage for my my little dust up with, with Dan Pastorini a few years later. But he yeah he actually got into a rolling around fist fight with Jack Gallagher, uh, who covered the Oilers in the 1960s and became a, a revered columnist here. So they they were actually at a, at an AFL meeting. They were on the ground rolling around and slugging each other. So sorry to have missed that. I think that's probably the funniest thing. And, <laughs> you know he would he would sh- he would show up uh, at, tra- at training camp in the, in the most gaudy clothes, driving the most gaudy car. You know it was just he he was a he was right out of central casting. Okay, and I'll I'll, I'll let you all figure out what what the character would be, but. Yeah, he made it interesting. There's no doubt about that. He made it interesting, and uh, but you know ultimately you know broke the city's heart by taking the team. So now this is a guy. Next guy I've got for you is, is somebody. I don't, I don't. You don't hear as many stories or people talking about the, this person, but you talk about villains, and and one of the craziest and strangest of all was uh, Bud's right hand man throughout the '80s, uh, Lad Herzig. Lad Herzig, yeah, my friend Lad. Yeah, oh, Lad. He was. 
He was something. Yes, he was. <laughs> what do you remember about the whole, were you following the, did you have to cover the story where he, he moons the wedding party up in Buffalo? You know, I, I, I don't even like to think about that because the image is just so awful. I just can't even get it. <laughs> I've never been able to get my arms around just trying to picture it. So I, t- I tend to shut it out. Did it happen? Probably, knowing lad. Uh, it probably did. Uh, I, I didn't see it happen, so I can't vouch for that. There was no question that lad was working against bum. Uh, lad, lad was power hungry. Lad wanted what bum had, which was control of the team. And, uh, and he also had Bud's ear because lad was a money guy. What year did he come in? Oh, God, he showed up in, uh, well, he was here uh, as, a, you know, like a, f- a functionary probably in 79. He began to surface and become, I mean, and, and you began to see where the poison, uh, there was going to be some poison during the 80s, 80s season. What was his background? Accountant. He was just an accountant that became, like today, this this something would never happen, basically. Well, you know, I, 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 unless, unless there's another Bud Adams out there. But, I mean, he, you know, he got, he got Bud's ear and he, he convinced Bud that he could make Bud a lot of money and that Bud was wasting money on this and that. Initially, he was more of an analyst, as I recall, for, uh, Bud, uh, for Bud's uh, oil company. And, but he was a sports fan and began just kind of worming his way in. And, again, if you told Bud you could make him some money, he, he would probably listen to you. If you told Bud you wanted some money, he was not going to listen to you. And, ultimately, that created huge problems with his best players. It, it actually probably had more to do with Bum being fired than, than all the nonsense about not hiring an offensive coordinator. I mean, Bum was, you know, had been to two AFC championship games and, and was, was making like $150,000 a year. John Meekham gave him, straight from the shoot, four fifty. And Lad, he he was uh, somebody that does he get credit for? I mean, th- there was a point in the early '80s where you know they drafted Munchak and Matthews, and they signed Warren Moon. He was a general manager. Obviously, he drafted a couple of Hall of Famers there. Who, who's to say Dean Steinkiller wouldn't have also been a Hall of Famer if he right. hadn't blown his knee out as a rookie? And uh, and he did preside over the Warren Moon acquisition. So there's nothing else to say other than he was the general manager of record, and it happened. But he also hired Hugh Campbell to come with Warren Moon. And it's possible that Warren wouldn't have signed here without Hugh getting the job. But Hugh Campbell was a disaster of a coach and should never never come anywhere near Houston. So he also, Ladd also gets credit for that. But he did things that embarrassed the organization, you know, had, you know got, got involved with one of the flight attendants, had a, ba- had a baby with her, and then brought the baby to the press box while he was still married to his wife. You know, I mean, that's who Ladd was. And was, that the, it was, was this the same uh, situation where – a couple of years, I think, after he left the Oilers, there was some sort of uh, he wasn't paying child support or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember and, that. And he, he disappeared. Did he just like disappear? Oh, he did. He actually, I, I'm told, and uh, John McLean could tell you for sure, because I think John actually talks to him occasionally or somebody I know does. But he, 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 I think he lives about a mile from where the Cleveland Browns train. He's an Ohio guy. But he, had, he can walk, I think, to the Browns training facility. Well, that's what's wrong with the Browns. <laughs> well, you, you know what? Just bad karma, man. Bad karma. Yeah, he, yeah, he's we we've had our we've had our share. I mean, especially when you look at look at today. Of course, now the Texans have no general manager, but obviously the both the other two teams uh, have two of the brightest general managers in sports. So you know, ironically, I I I left in what I consider to be the golden age of Houston sports. So and that that's a little weird, but you know, again, forty six years you run out of gas. Yeah, and that's I agree with you. I think that this has kind of been the goal, especially with the, the 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 talent that you see with all the teams. And you mentioned Guy V. Lewis earlier, and I have to ask you about him. You talked about you know just kind of meeting him, but what's your best memory of of being around him and over the years? And and what did you maybe learn about uh, Guy V. Lewis as a as a person and as a coach? Where, where the Hall of Fame folks got it wrong, and you can talk all you want about him not winning championships with great talent, it's pretty obvious that uh, the 
two teams that got beat by UCLA were not as good as the UCLA teams, despite the outcome of the game in Houston. They weren't. Uh, the three uh, Faisal-Majama teams, yeah, at least one of those teams, uh, certainly the one that lost to North Carolina State, was the best team in the country. He didn't win. Uh, but where, where, where they got it wrong was Guy, Guy Lewis is a social visionary. Guy Lewis changed basketball uh, both from a marketing standpoint because it was Guy's idea to put that game on. John wouldn't have wanted nothing to do with it. It took a lot of backroom machinations to make because Guy, Guy knew what that would mean. And he also integrated the South. And he didn't do, he didn't do it gratuitously. He did it because he knew it was right. And Guy V, uh, as an X's and O's guy, does he get underrated? In, in that, well, in that yeah, yeah, because he always gets blamed for his, his lack of strategy. He had, he had, you know, had all this great talent. But, I mean, this is not breaking news. But, you know, however much you want to second-guess his uh, slowdown strategy against uh, NC State, if they make half of those free throws they missed, it's still a, it's, 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 it's irrelevant. You know, I, was he the greatest coach that ever lived? Probably not. Was he one of the best? Maybe. I mean, his, uh, I think he called it the Z5A half-court trap, was one of the most ingenious uh, uh, basketball strategies of, of, of the age. I mean, he was a visionary in how, how, how he played. I mean, how he played on the court. He also had great players. He was smart enough to see that, no, you know, he understood that the, the times were changing. You, you know, we need to change with the times, both basketball-wise and socially. So lots of credit. And it's not coincidental that one of his closest friends, a lot of people don't realize this, was Don Haskins. In fact, Don had, Don had, because of that friendship, that's why David Latin, Latin, Big Daddy D, who was the, the, the center who spiritually broke the Kentucky Wildcats that night in, uh, in Maryland, Guy wanted him uh, to go to junior college, wait two years because the university had decided they would integrate the football program first, and the next year Guy could integrate the basketball program. That was, again, this is the world that we lived in in those days. And, and David Latin, who was the first Houston's first ever consensus basketball All-American at Worthing High School, he said, Guy V, I'm not, I'm not a junior college player. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to do that. And he ended up making it. He made a terrible mistake, ended up at Tennessee State, and didn't, uh, things didn't work out there. And, and Guy tried again. And, and David said, I'm not going to junior college, Coach. I've told you that. So Guy told uh, Dave, David. Gave, gave him Don Haskins' number. I, I got a guy who's going to – he'll sign in a minute. And that's how David Blatton ended up at winning the national championship at Texas West. And you came in just after this, but, you know, you said about integrating the football program. Uh, Billy Yeoman was incredible doing that with Warren McVay and, and how sure. he changed uh, just the entire, I, I guess, Southern – college football at that point with what with well i mean the university of houston gets a huge amount of credit because and it's interesting you bring this up we don't we don't have time to segue off here but i'm gonna put in a plug for a new book that's coming out next month written by a young man named asher price who who builds the book around earl campbell's history and tyler and 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 the overt and covert racism that he dealt with growing up in the university of texas and all of that and let's just say at the university of houston comes off as as the city on the hill compared to every other school in the state especially the university of texas Okay, but it but it took guys like Bill Yeoman and Guy Lewis. Yeoman, of course, came from you know he was an Army guy and worked at Michigan State. You know, Guy Guy V was Arp Texas. Now there was a lot of reasons why Guy V should have been Adolph Rupp in terms of the way he, way he thought about uh, uh, racial relations and all of this. But Guy V just he he was a visionary. He was he was a, he was the Roy Hoffines of his year. Make sense? Yeah, and just amazing. All these guys, you know, came through Houston. I'll stay with basketball and, and go uh, fast forward. 
a few years later, Van Chancellor was another guy that I think really had an impact on you just get, being around him and with what he did with the Houston Comets, obviously winning four championships. Well, he, fa- he, he, he saved me from uh, the infinite boredom having no football team during that period. The Comets came along at exactly the right time because yeah. the Oilers <laughs> had left. But yeah, yeah, Van, Van was, oh my gosh, what a, what a, what a guy he was. Yeah. A great coach too, obviously. And had been a great coach at the college level. He understood talent. I mean, you know, it did it, it you know, everybody knew who Cheryl Swoops was, but it, it took a, a Van Chancellor to knew what knew who Cynthia Cooper was and brought her back kind of from she was forgotten playing in Europe, but I mean it was Cynthia Cooper that made that whole thing possible and that was all on Van. Van knew exactly who she was. Tina Thompson now in the Hall of Fame as well. Yeah, those, those were fun times. I mean, Van Van was a hoot. He was funny. He was great. But he could coach too. It was it wasn't a comedy act. It just looked like a comedy act. <laughs> yeah, and and it's funny because you know, you talk about what a good guy somebody like van chancellor is and guy v lewis is and you know i think it's one of the frustrations you and i talked about you know with bill o'brien is like you don't have to be a jerk to be a great coach and uh you can talk about bum phillips and there's a whole history of guys that have been successful in houston and you love these guys they're they're really good people and i want to get to one of those guys and that's rudy tom Jonovich. oh well yeah yeah you know, and, and, and uh, you know, talk about it. You know, he, he was a lunch pail player, you know, blue collar guy who, who made a great career for himself. And he coached the same way. He didn't pretend to, he didn't pretend to know everything. He relied on assistant coaches. He, he, he relied on what his players told him. He, he wore his heart on his sleeve. Yeah. You know, we you know, for all, all, all we can complain about the bad people we've had, we've had some remarkable people. And uh, Rudy, Rudy's right there, too, because he he he, he got it at a visceral level. Uh, and he and he and he knew what he had in terms of talent, and he let the talent play. But the key thing was he knew how to make players like each other because that's who he was. Remember, who was his roommate? Calvin Murphy. Talk about the all-time odd couple, right? They were best friends. Yeah. Rudy just got it. See, the great coaches, you know, they've they've got that. You know, I think you know, I I think uh, yeah, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that AJ Hinch has that quality. You know, I don't know AJ well because I haven't done a lot of baseball during his tenure. But I, th- I think he's he's a guy we're going to remember in the same category before they're done here. I want to get back to some of these names, but you know, I, you just made me think about this. Over the years, was it easier for you to maybe develop the relationship with these head coaches? Not only because maybe their guard was down a little bit, but good good people. And you know, was that the case, or it just depended on the head coach? Maybe, and and that's the only thing that that's might have changed over the years is well this guy's a little bit you know he's just different different personality i mean jimmy williams uh you know he was difficult but maybe aj hinch later on you know this is a more current guy but easier to get to know easier to develop relationship as a reporter i mean that's an example even though you weren't you didn't cover a lot of well, AJ, AJ, aj hinch is a very smart guy Jim, jimmy williams was shall we say less smart yeah <laughs> that was part of jimmy's problem but you know i'm going to segue completely here because we're completely forgetting one important chapter of my career but it ties into exactly what you just asked me here the, the houston arrows of the world hockey association yeah no i was going to ask you about this was the next thing gordy Howe. tell but, me about well but see it falls in but uh before we go to gordy i'm going to actually talk about i'm going to mention the coach bill Deneen. bill Deneen, right right okay bill Deneen was was Rudy on ice skates and without a without a uh, NHL resume that Rudy would have had in the NBA but same thing humble you know knew his talent knew how to make people like each other and there were some you know there were some pretty strange characters among those original arrows but everybody respected Foxy 
That was his nickname. And nobody would ever make decisions that would disrupt, cause Foxy problems. And I, and by and large, you know, Akeem had some issues uh, with management and maybe didn't always make the right decision early in his career. And Rudy got caught up in that. But Rudy, you know, Rudy finessed it. But Bill Deneen, you know, wor- working with a, with a team of, of guys, most of the guys who were minor league players for most of their careers, and then the greatest hockey player ever. Sorry, Wayne Gretzky, I'm going with Gordy. But, you know, G- Gordy, they don't call him Mr. Hockey for nothing, right? Yeah. And, and, and that dynamic and, you know, the two of them working together and watching that happen, uh, and, we, and with all these very peripheral players, produce, you know, two championships and almost a third. But, yeah, Gordy, I mean, you know, you, you, on any short list of people who have passed through, he wasn't here very long. And, of course, we, we just rented him. We didn't own him. Right? What, what was it like? Just, I mean, you're, you're in Houston. There's no, Who cares about hockey in Houston? And all of a sudden, not only does a hockey team drop in in Houston, but Gordy Howe drops in. Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't cover them. The first year I covered them was the year they moved to the Summit. And at that point, people in Houston cared greatly about, the, about, about hockey. And you know what the best comparison is? When the Rockets opened the Summit. They played the first regular season game in the Summit. First game, first season game of any any game, they didn't, because the preseason the building was not quite ready. They drew seventy five hundred people. Two nights later, the Arrows opened their season and drew ten five. Okay, the the, the Arrows the, the Arrows at that point were were actually a much more beloved than the Rockets were. Not not even close. But of course, you also had a Gordy Howe playing here, and Gordy had a lot to do with it. And of course, he's playing with his sons. You know, and again, great great guys, great people. Probably my most memorable year in sports writing, just because. Uh, the first hockey game I uh, covered was also the first hockey game I ever saw. And a uh, quick Gordy story there. You want to pretty much sums up who he was. And would this happen today with anybody? Probably not. But a couple of weeks into training camp, he, he, he I was on the, on the ice talking to Bill Deneen, the coach, after practice. And he came by and gave me one of those famous forearm shivers that Gordy was famous for and knocked me about 30 feet. Yeah. <laughs> I got him. Yeah. I said, Gordy, what the hell was that for? He says, ah, kid, you know I love you. So come here, come here. We got to talk about something. I said, All right, what? I think, All right, what have I done? I've obviously written something that's going to really upset him. He said, "Look, you know, you and I both know you don't know a damn thing about hockey." <laughs> I said, "But you know, but 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 un- unlike you know, I forget how he said this, but you know, unlike a lot of a lot of a lot of you, you you really want to learn this, and I like the way you write, and you're fair." So he says, "I tell you what, we're going to do." Because the summit wasn't known if it was going to be ready on time, the 75-76 arrows, which is the year I covered them, opened the season with a 26-day road trip. Wow, that's like a Spurs circus trip. But it only encompassed it only encompassed about six games. It was just to keep them out of Houston. So we we spent an entire week in Toronto. All right, so I'm uh, 23 years old on an expense account, staying at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto. Gordy took me to lunch two or three days in a row. I think we had two lunches and then just another rap session where we sat for three hours until he told stories. He explained hockey strategy, drew things, drew things on napkins. And, you know, I mean, you know, for me, it was like learning baseball from Babe Ruth. Very special place in my heart for Gordy. Oh, that's unbelievable. And, and because I was so young, I, most of the players were so old. I, I, I got to know Mark and Marty, the boys, really well because we were, they were the only guys on the team that was my age. You know, well, there were a couple others, but. But Mark in particular was only 18 years old, so I, I kind of wound up babysitting him a little bit. And uh, it, so what happens there, he, he plays 21 years in the NHL as in the Hall of Fame, the only father and son Hall of Fame combination in, in our in North American sports. Was it like a slap shot that, that, covering that team? Or I mean, what was the feel that you got from being around the Arrows in that time? 
they they had they had a couple clowns, but and and they they were pranksters and they were funny, but they were there there was nothing there was nothing minor league about the way they approached the game. I mean, there was nobody nobody in that team that would have disrespected either Bill Deneen or Gordy Howe acting like an idiot. I mean, they you know they had their you know they had their fun, but that was that was a a a great operation. It was a great operation. I'm going to go back to a guy that that you mentioned earlier and. Just, you know, he's one of the best people, I think, in Houston sports. Not, you know, up there as far as one of the great players, but Dan Pastorini, uh, just one of the fantastic personalities. You know, I've had a chance to interview him on the podcast, but you became friends with him. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I became too good of friends with him, and that led to a very bad situation, which I'm sure most of your listeners that know anything about me or him would probably remember. But that, that was also a very, a very teachable moment for me is you really can't become friends with the people you cover. Take, take me through that because well, that, that'd think, be another two hours, but, but, uh, but you're 40, you know, 40, it's been 40 years ago. So a lot yeah. of people, if you're younger than 40, 40, you have no, yeah, no idea about, about this. The, the, uh, yeah, we, um, it was the apex of love you blue, the 1979 season. Uh, they, they'd come off the AFC championship game appearance, uh, the previous year in Pittsburgh. And, uh, when Dan came back that summer for the training camp in San Angelo, summer of 1979, there was something terribly wrong with his arm. Anybody could see that. He couldn't throw a football. This is a guy who could throw a football 80 yards, you know, in, in, in dead spiral down, straight down the field. Now was having a hard time hitting guys on, on little quick outs 10 yards. You know, I mean, something was wrong. And either the Oilers, including my friend Bum, and Dan himself were lying about it, but their, their argument is they, weren't, they, 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 they thought he'd strained something. It was always this very, very vague thing, but it was just pretty obvious what, there was something terribly wrong there. And if it didn't get fixed – the season was not going to go well. So uh, as, as training camp wore on and preseason games, it, it wasn't getting any better. At one point, in fact, that summer in San Angelo, one of the things Dan was doing to try to strengthen the shoulders, he was going water skiing on a lake uh, near the tra- near San Angelo State to try to strengthen, you know, because water skiing requires shoulder, you know, a lot of shoulder strength. Right. And and I was a water skier. And I, I mean, I literally went out with them a couple of days. Carl Mock drove the boat, and Dan and I water skied. Okay, and how crazy is that? But in a bar at night, I'd sit there and drink with him. He was pretty astute in terms of me. He understood that if he could cultivate a reporter, he was going to – and it had worked really well up to this point, except now he can't throw a football. And I told him as a friend, I said, Dan, I want to give you some cover here. There's something wrong here. I mean, you know, because if there isn't something wrong, you're done. I don't know what's happened. And, and he thought by my writing about it, the more I wrote about it, the weaker was going to make him, the opponents would have seen that there was a huge problem. But I said, Dan, that's crazy. They're watching, they're, they're looking at your film. film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm trying to tell people that you're hurt. And because the, and the, and, the fans are getting really, like, what the hell's wrong with Pastorini, right? But he was headstrong. I was headstrong. And we just never could, you know, the situation got worse and worse and worse to the point that, you know, he yelled at me after the final preseason game and says, you're trying to ruin my career. And I said, I am not. I am trying to help you, et cetera. But being stubborn, you know, I made no efforts to fix it. You know, he clearly wasn't going to. I mean, you know, needless to say, he was the, he was the alpha male in this situation. <laughs> I'm not, that's not breaking news. Yeah. And, and the Oilers, you know, the, the – what I should have done in retrospect is gone to Bum and said, Bum, we got to get this fixed. But, you know, I, I felt like that'd be crying on the head coach's shoulder. And, I, you know, and again, I was, I was, you know, I had my hands crossed across my chest. Harumph, you know, screw him. No, screw you. So I, I, I made no effort. That was totally on me. Big, huge mistake. I mean, I'd, I'd, today I'd have gotten it fixed within a week. Or if it wasn't fi- fixable, at least we'd have tried, right? 
So it just got worse and worse. And then late in the season, he was starting to play better. But uh, unfortunately, uh, one of the guys that was not profiting from his improvement was a tight end, Mike Barber, who has now become a somewhat beloved figure in his own right, prison minister and all that. But Mike was quite a rounder in those days, too. And it turns out that he and Dan were actually, uh, shall we say, attracted to the same woman. And when, one day in a story, for a story, I went to Barber and said, oh, so why aren't you getting to Baltimore? And he, and he totally unloaded on Dan. And I didn't know there was a personal relationship, you know, I would, I, you know, so, but when the story ran and that, that's when things really went south. And so at that point, Pastor Ernie would refuse to talk to me and, and, and often wouldn't even do it, wouldn't even do a group interview if he saw me in the group. So right before the AFC championship game, Pastor Ernie had not played the previous week in San Diego, nor had Earl, nor had Kenny Burrow, which made that probably the single greatest upset in Houston sports history to beat the Chargers in San Diego without those three guys. But I needed a quote for a story on whether, how Pastor Ernie felt. So I got it from a, a young uh, radio guy named um, uh, Chris Begala, who's Paul Begala's uh, younger brother, by the way. He became a strategist in the Clinton administration, a prominent politico. But Chris was, Chris was a great great kid, great kid. I said, hey, man, just let me listen to your tape. And so we sat down, and he played the tape for me. And, I, you know, today, of course, I say told KILT radio. I mean, but no, I just took it as a quote for myself. And, and I told the young man that I got it from him, look, I'm not giving you credit for this. I just need this. and I'll do you a favor. You know, I'll, you know, I'll buy lunch. And I'll buy you a burger next week, right? Because I think Chris was only like 16 years old at the time. He was really just a intern wandering around out there, right? <laughs> so the story runs. And, and next day, next day, now the national media on a Thursday has, has come to Houston. And this is before the, you know, so before the big press conference where Bum's going to talk, Dan's going to talk, Earl's going to talk. I'm in the locker room. And, and this, is, this is where the story really tells you how the world has changed. I'm actually in the training room. Now, can you imagine today being in the training room at the Texans? You'd you get tasered. I mean, yeah. they would taser you. They wouldn't kill you, but they would at least taser you. But I'm in the training room talking to Elvin Bethay, who's sitting in the ice tub, and, and Pastorini comes in. Is this the same ice tub that Barry Warner got thrown I into? I do believe it was. <laughs> I do believe it was. In fact, I'm sure it was, because Bud never bought anything new, and that was, a, that, that was the rattiest, most sorry training facility on this planet, that a team could actually get almost to the Super Bowl working out of something like that was an embarrassment. That's on Bud, another story. Anyway, so Dan starts jawing at me, and I start jawing back. Rather than letting it go, he keeps going, and I keep following him, and I'm shaking my finger at him, and – you know, and it, and it continues as we walk into this little Quonset hut portable schoolroom where they're doing the press conference. That's kind of what the facilities were like. Just as we walk through the door, as I as I recall, I mean, there are a couple versions of it. I mean, it, it all became a blur after that. But but I I do remember I I I I called him a prima donna asshole. That that's what came out of my mouth just as we entered the room where there are about thirty thirty or forty reporters gathered, and everybody in the room, you know, turned all the heads turned. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's that, there's that, you know, in a movie, there's that frozen moment. You know, you, if you looked at Pastorini, you can start to see the smoke coming. And, and, and had we not been in the press conference room, I don't know what would have happened. But in no way was he going to let this pipsqueak reporter call him a prima donna asshole in front of the national media. I mean, it, he processed this. Okay. So he grabbed me. I was, I was wearing this kind of weird vest, you know, old cowboy vest, because we all tried to dress like bum. You know, we all wanted to all be part of the team. <laughs> And he grabbed me, and I, he threw me up against perhaps thinking he was throwing me up against the wall. What would happen there, I don't know. But he threw me up against the door we had just come in, which released. And so we went tumbling out like a couple of clowns, you know, 
out onto the little the landing out there. I mean, literally just rolled out the door like it was. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> now, understand, this is three days before the AFC I'm Championship. Saying, I'm trying to envision this. With Vision the, it today. With the, the, Deshaun Watson. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'll try to yeah, put it in modern context. And, uh, and, and, and I kid you not, I landed on Bum Phillips' boot. Okay. Yeah. Which probably saved me from a concussion. Really. Yeah. I mean, because otherwise I'd hit my head on the, on, on the, on the wood landing. Okay. And, and, and I, I am not making this up. Bum is standing there having an interview with John Clayton, who we came to know as the professor, the old professor on ESPN. Right. Right. But John Clayton is also a young reporter, probably my age. You know, he's come down from Pittsburgh. He's working for the Pittsburgh, one of the Pittsburgh papers. And he's asking Bum about this incredible symbiotic relationship in Houston, Texas, between the team and the and and the and and the, you know the fans and the media and the, you know this you know the cowboy thing and all the how does all you know and Bum was going on about this we had this you know everybody blah 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 and all of a sudden uh, uh, Dale Robertson is now on the ground on his boot with with his quarterback has his fist back ready (laughs) and bum looks down and goes till now what the hell's going on (laughs) and at that point dan was pulled off of me so there was no uh, which is which so the story ends there but it things things got a little weird thereafter in terms of you know let's that that's the football side of it let's just leave it there and move move on but that that but having said that but okay Getting back to your original point, this was a long digression. The reason Dan couldn't throw the football is because he had taken so many shots. He played; he was playing with three broken ribs in the playoffs the previous year that they, they basically destroyed the nervous system in his shoulder. Okay? And the only reason today, of course, did Sean Watson might, may, might take a bus ride to um, uh, Jack, Jacksonville to play a game, but no way on earth a player today would allow this to happen to him. Dan, by God, after all he'd been through in Houston, was not going to be deprived of a chance to go to the Super Bowl. So he, he said, keep shooting me. And he played well in, in that playoff until Pittsburgh was a disaster. But, that, you know, but you know, again, Miami and New England, the two previous games, he was really good. But in Pittsburgh, things fell apart. Maybe the arm at that point was coming apart. But that's, that's why it happened. It was his toughness and his desire and his, you know, he, he loved that football team. And he was the spiritual leader of the team. He was. He felt an obligation. You know, he basically ruined his career to do that because that's because ultimately that, that, you know, that, well, even indirectly, truthfully, I think Bum did trade him because of our incident. I thought he, I think Bum thought that Dan was unstable, that this, under any circumstances, this should not have happened. And he had a chance to get Kenny Stabler. And Kenny Stabler had had a lot of success against the Pittsburgh Steelers. But if Dan and I don't go tumbling out the door, I'm not sure that Dan would have been traded. And, and it, it, you know, and I will say this for Dan, though, and because it, 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 his career, you know, was pretty much over at that point. He broke his leg in Oakland and ended up being a backup in Philly and L.A., and that was the end of it. But I, I, I saw Dan – in a restaurant in 1984, this is four years after this happened, he saw me, and at that point I'm going, you know what, he may come over here and this may turn into another ugly scene. He came over, stuck his hand out and said, hey, just wanted to say I had an old friend. And that was the end of it. And but only maybe two or three years ago did we actually talk it out, and now I fully understand why the arm had gone bad. You know, it's still unclear as to whether they knew fully what they were doing to him when they did it. Or, and But he fully admitted, he said, look, man, they could have, I, I didn't care. I had to play. I wanted to play. He's the toughest son of a bitch I ever covered. I'll put it that way. Because I know what he went through before I covered him. And it wasn't even great, you know, when I was covering him. They still didn't have a great offensive line. You know, they lost Greg Sampson, who could have been an all-pro to a weird injury, and et cetera. There were a lot of comings and goings. And, but 
Dan Dan played. He played. He played hurt, and and he never complained, and and he never owned up to being hurt. So yeah. Most interesting guy that you that you cover. I mean, this is somebody that I mean we talked. I've talked a little bit about it on the show, but you know, this is somebody that you know was was racing boats. He ended up being a drag racer. You know, he was dating and engaged to Playboy playmates. No, he's he, married. He was married. He was married to Jen Wilkinson, who was uh, probably one of the probably the most famous uh, Playboy playmate of the nineteen sixties. She and she was like twenty nineteen twenty years older than he was too, <laughs> and, and, and dated Farrah Fawcett uh, during his time briefly, with the Blues. Yeah, 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 because yeah, 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 no, he did. He, yeah, Dan, Dan, Dan passed during life story was um, let's just say he lived large. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Large, but, uh, the, 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 but the guy had a big heart, and I would have tremendous regret today if that had never gotten fixed. But it didn't even require fixing ultimately because you know he, he was a bigger man than that, and. Uh, he said, "You know, I'm sorry a lot of that happened, and but let's just get on down the road." So, all cooted him. I'm not sure I would have ever taken the step. You feel like, I mean, the next few years of your career, did that sort of follow you around? Was it frustrating for you to that that sort of happened all publicly? The only thing that was frustrating is because there were there were there were some elements in Houston at that time that really wanted to really wanted to do me personal harm because you know. Uh, you know, it was kind of it was kind of a shadowing of what's happening right now in this god awful political environment we're in today. Uh, a couple folks, uh, you know, went on the radio, and went on television, and you know, said, "You know, this guy's trying to ruin your football team." Did you get threats after this? About a hundred death threats. Hundred death. By threats. the time the night, by the time the night was over, I had to have a police escort home. Wow. Very funny story, though. And you know, a great story because uh, I want to throw this guy's name in here. Kirk Logan, the managing editor of the Houston Post at the time, he gets a call from uh, Mrs. Hobby. At nine o'clock that night, when all hell's breaking loose, the building—the building's also, you know, having to be surrounded by squad cars because people are going to come up there and storm the building. I know it was awful; it was bad, but it wasn't because it was because of what was being said by a couple of individuals. And I'm just going to leave their names out of this because I don't like talking about them. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so Mrs. Mrs. Hobby calls uh, calls Kirk and says, "Kirk, I don't know what's going on down there, but you got to fucking just fire this guy. <laughs> we we don't need this because at this point the post has already started in that start of in its." downward slide that's ultimately lends to you know ends the paper ends up folding of course many years later but i mean they there were concerns at the time and and she obviously was looking at it you know ad revenues i mean this could really be bad and this the is hobby, hobby sold it i think just like four, four four years later or something yeah actually that's correct yeah yeah so just kirk just fire him would you? I mean, just, please and and kirk logan the guy that i hadn't really had a close relationship with nice guy but i you know really hadn't interacted much with him he said well mrs hobby complicated i mean yeah he, he made some mistakes here uh but he's a really good young reporter and he's you know he's just you know he doesn't deserve this i mean this 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 is not his, what's happening right now is not his fault and she kind of explained to her because she didn't really know what was going on and uh she said, Sabe, i just can't do that it's just it's not right and, and and she persisted and he persisted and finally finally he said well mrs hobby okay you're, you're you know i work for you i'll fire him but then i'm resigning that's big. <laughs> and, and, you know, and Kirk told me this himself. And he has no reason. You know, he's not with us anymore, but wonderful man. Ended up becoming the publicist for the entire medical center. That was his final professional role. So she goes, well, well Kirk, I can't afford to lose you. And she says, well, will you, will you at least tell him to get a haircut? Because, you know, you know I probably should have prefaced this. At the time, I had, you know, what we called in the day a white man's afro. And, and it had been... It, it, it was on steroids that day because it was a stupidly windy day. And I literally was on my way to get a haircut, but ran, was running late and thought, I can't can't be late to the facility, so I didn't get the haircut. And the wind was blowing, so my hair was, you know, 
sticking out like you know I, I look like you know you, but you're, you, picture you're, somebody in a fright wig. You're in your twenties, and it's it, that was the times. Is, this is the times. Yeah, uh, that was this. Would you please tell him to get a haircut? <laughs> 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 because I was on all over uh, two of the two of the stations. Eleven and thirteen had 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 actually had live video. Like thirteen is had the video. Something's happened to the video. I'm, I'm told it got destroyed somehow accidentally. But there, there was so anytime there was ever an altercation between. Yeah, I feel for, like for I decades, saw it for decades. In fact, if you if you Google me right right now, you will see Dan Pastor Dale Robertson fight. You will probably see a photo that ran that was the entire back page of the New York Daily News the next day with me on the ground and Pastor and his fist reared back. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I've seen that. I I feel like I saw the video when it happened back in. I mean, hey, I was a little kid at the time. But. I'm not. Pr- I'm not proud that it happened. Obviously, because. I mean, I, I, I was as, made as many mistakes as Dan did in this period. That was it. We, this was, this was, this was, this was on both of us. It's on both of us. But the, what, the best thing that came out of it was a lot of old, famous old sports writers around the country who didn't know me from Adam all rallied around me in, in every press box I was in for the next three years. If I was in, if I was in LA, a Jim Murray would come over and talk to me, a Blackie Sheridan Dallas Will McDonough, who you know, ended up actually winning a fight against Raymond Claiborne, <laughs> he actually knocked play, <laughs> Claiborne silly, became my best friend. And all these guys, you know, they they, they came up to me and put their arms around me and said, "Hey, kid, we're, we got your back. You know, you know, you know, maybe you didn't do the right thing here, but this ain't right." And 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 frankly, I have to say, another guy who did that, who actually came up to me in the locker room the next day in Pittsburgh, because I got on a flight, thank God, the next morning for Pittsburgh, which had already been planned. A lot of people thought I was fleeing. But in those days, we didn't have the resources to send what we call advanced guys. So I, I, I flew to Pittsburgh for their stuff on Friday. I walked into the Steelers locker room. Terry Bradshaw came over to me and just said, hey, come here a minute. And, says, you know, and he put his arm around. And I didn't, I didn't know Bradshaw other than having you know, been around him in press conferences and stuff. And he said, yeah, he says, you know, I'm sorry that happened. That wasn't right. Dan's a good guy, but he just, now that was, that was completely inexcusable. I just want you to know on behalf of, you know, national football players, you know, we apologize. That was Terry Bradshaw. You know, completely unsolicited. I just kind of went, oh, well, th- geez, thanks, Terry. <laughs> thanks, Terry. And those guys really admired the, the Oilers and Bum. Too. No, they, they, well, they, the teams had a great mutual respect. And that's why I say at that point they had a great mutual respect because the Oilers had kicked their ass in that last regular season game. The score wasn't bad, but they had physically beaten them up. And John Clayton probably, every time he saw you, probably said, I'm, I'm trying to do an interview. Stay away from me, Dale. Yeah, Clay, needless to <laughs> say, Clayton and I became great friends. <laughs> See, that's been a long, strange ride. <laughs> All right. Just, just, I got a lot ask. of digressions here, but uh. <laughs> that's, that's okay. It's good. This is good stuff. And, and, you know, a guy that I, we got to get at least one story from you. What's the story that just sticks out with you when you think of Bump Phillips? <laughs> Oh boy, that's a hard one. Uh, just again, uh, truthfully, just at the, ultimately, just the man's humanity, who he was, good people. Do you remember Wade at that time? Oh yeah, Wade. Uh, Wade and I both broke into the National Football League together. He was he was a rookie assistant coach in '76, and I was a rookie beat reporter. Has Wade changed much since? Dramatically, then? Wade. Wade was not funny then. He let his father. He was a straight man to his father. Wade. Wade was actually a lousy interview as an assistant coach of the Oilers, but why? Because he knew his place. He wasn't going to get in his father's way. That, that wasn't who, you know, Wade was probably already really funny, but he was not going to steal Bum's stage. That's, you know, he, he, he I mean, Wade truly loved uh, Bum. I mean, there was, that was not just my dad's kind of a cool guy. There was a tremendous depth of affection between those two. And, and, I, I, and Wade didn't become Wade, frankly, and, you know, until long after that, until he was his own man, because he just wasn't going to usurp. You know, Bum, Bum's gonna be the funny guy. I'll be the straight guy. So he was a terrible interview, but, but we liked each other, and you know, we we, we 
talked a lot off the record. He was he was a good source of information. But early on, I had I kind of had had an ugly incident, like a few week, few days into my first training camp, and uh, the the orders had had waived Bubba Smith, Toady Smith, his brother, and Curly Culp uh, boycotted practice that day, and it was more just as a kind of like a you know throwing one down for him. Now, they weren't really trying. They didn't necessarily think Bubba had done the wrong thing, but they just said, we're, we're just going to do this in Bubba's memory because that's pretty much the end of Bubba's career. And I, I, I just wrote a little short story saying they did it. I didn't, there was no, didn't make any call. I just said, this is what happened. And, you know, and Bubba had a comment about it and that was the story. But the next day in practice, they, they, they confronted me and uh, accused me of doing, you know, of being really kind of a bad guy. And that was intimidating, having Toady Smith on one side and Curly Culp on the other, and I'm in the middle. And, and I, truthfully, I think they were doing it just to, you know, just have some fun with this kid. Let's intimidate him, and then he'll, you know, he'll toe the line the rest of the season. I'm, I'm reasonably certain that's what was going on. Curly was very difficult in those days, and and I and I I, f- I fully understand why he was a great guy today. I mean, you know, Curly I know today is not the guy then, but he had a right to be who he was then. We won't get in, go down that road, but he, he he was he was exactly who he should have been, but very tough to cover. Anyway, so after this happened, I, I, I went over to Bum's office, and of course, again, how things have changed. I just. Bum's in his office watching film, and I rap on the door and says, hey, coach, you got a minute? You know, I mean, there was, there was, no, there was no gauntlet to run. He was just in there. He said, oh, yeah, Dale, come on in. What's up? You know, he had his feet up on the desk and had his coaching sock, you know, still pictures, white coaching socks and his ball cap and his, his cup of chewing tobacco. So I explained to him what had happened. And he thought for a moment and spit in the cup. I said, Dale, here's the problem. Toady, Curly, now Curly, Curly's just a big old turd, <laughs> just, but he's a really good football player, and I can't win without him, so you're going to have to figure it out with him. He says, Toady, I might cut his ass tomorrow. <laughs> and I looked at Bum, I said, got it, Coach, thanks, I'll, I'll make this work. And I think he ended up, he did end up cutting t- Toady, but of course, Curly that defense would not have worked without Curly Culp. He, he made the, he, he made, you know, Earl on the offensive side, Curly on the defensive side. He didn't get the attention that maybe that a Robert Brazil or a, a, an Elvin Bethay got, but it was Curly that made that defense work. He invented that defense. Of course, uh, I, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of the Texans characters because I don't really feel like there, there's a lot of good Texans characters to, to get no, into. We can't, you know, but it's important too that, you know, just, you know, as long as, you know, we're doing this is that, you know, I'm not, I, I I never lived in the past. I've got great affection for people I've covered recently. The know? stories though aren't as good though. That's what well, I'm no, saying. Well, no, because in frankly, because we're not in situations where we can see the see them evolve. Yeah, because, it's tough. Because they, they, they all have too many minors, and that that's one of the reasons I'm not going to miss sports writing is because as tough as the past or anything was, it was a byproduct of of having real raw relationships with people. Today, that's almost impossible for uh, uh, journalists covering uh, professional athletes. Uh, the, the PR the PR operations are too slick and too managed, so it, it it it's it's not even remotely as fun as it was. I, I mean, I was still having fun. I didn't quit because I wasn't having fun anymore. I just quit because I got old and my wife wanted me to. And we you know we, we we spent a little time in France, as you're probably aware of. So I'm not I didn't leave mad, but it just wasn't that much fun anymore. With one exception, I have to say this one kid I'm really going to miss, Justin Reed. Justin Reed is a throwback, and because he wasn't ever being minded, because usually. In fact, in fact, frankly, until the Kaepernick Nike thing became something, he was just a guy over there. But you could have a real conversation with this young man, and I'm gonna I'm gonna miss watching him grow up. What What have you learned about him just in that in the short time? Incredibly smart. I mean, he's the kind of guy. I look at this kid and say, he might be running for president in 25 years. I mean, that that's how smart he is. 
just it, but also un uh, and, and it, it'll get them in trouble at some point un, unfiltered but not carelessly unfiltered he just he gives he gives honest assessments of situations he, he he answers honestly and he expands upon an answer if he's interested in the topic i mean they're all being told now to do none of that just get it over with as quickly as possible give them nothing so at some point, I think Justin Reed and Bill O'Brien are going to have a problem because I think Justin Reed will see something that he sees as unjust, and he's going to call call out the organization on it. That I'm thinking. I hope it doesn't happen because that means something you know something bad has happened. But but I put Justin Reed again based on just one year's experience. He he's a guy that I'll remember you know vividly from this era. I mean, I didn't spend enough time around the, any of the Rockets or the uh, Astros in the, at the last stage of my career to have you know been. I, I can't say that about any of them. So I'm not going to go out on a limb there, but yeah, I mean they're there, you know. And I have to say, Andre Johnson cannot say enough about him. Andre Johnson hated interacting with the media. Hated. You could see it in his eyes. You could see it in his countenance. But he understood the value of it. And you know, when he got there, and 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 the tape recorder started turning, Andre did what he was supposed to do, and he answered honestly, and he and he answered intelligently. And you know, again, on, on on any short list of my career, those those two guys will be there absolutely. Of all the guys, and I should ask mention this guy's name. Of all the players that you saw play, you know, you saw a ton of NFL in Houston over the years. You know, guys like Warren Moon. You mentioned, of course, the great Earl Campbell, uh, Hall of Famers, Brazil, uh, Bethay, uh, Curly Culp. But is the best player that you saw in Houston? Is it even close? Is it J.J. Watt? I'll never concede that J.J. is a, is a bigger impact player than Earl Campbell. I, I simply won't do that because uh, Earl Campbell single-handedly dragged his team to two AFC Championship games. J.J. hasn't done that. J.J., of course, does not play a position that would allow him to have the impact of an Earl Campbell. But I, they're, one, they're 1A, 1B to me, but J.J. is uh, still 1B. Earl's still 1A. Wow. You said maybe the most frustrating moment of your career. What was the best moment of your career? Well, in terms of just, you know, big picture, uh, uh, watching, watching the celebration break out after Game 7 and 94 against the Knicks and the Rockets, and watching the unbridled joy of Rudy. I tear up a little bit talking about. Yeah, it was – I mean, I teared up at the time just watching it as a fan because it wasn't just that they won. It was just what this, the city what had the gone city through. What the city had been through, but also what Rudy had been through personally. The Kermit Washington punch. I mean uh, – you know, being doubted as a coach, uh, being close to being fired on a couple of occasions. Keem caused him problems uh, only a couple of years early, uh, uh, earlier. You know, and, you know, and 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 Rudy just always somehow. I mean, I I know I know how it affected Rudy. I I you know, Rudy was a guy too that I occasionally ran into late at night over a few too many alcoholic beverages, and I I I know I know I know what his mindset was. And to watch him dance around just that that was that was incredible. Again, I can't the, – the, Astro, the Astros championship, of course, happened in L.A., and I wasn't there. And I was actually tasting uh, very famous old wines while it was happening, which I thought was somewhat karma for uh, the way my career evolved. <laughs> but that was kind of a perfect juxtaposition. But, of course, no feeling for it because it's just happening on television, and I'm in a room with a bunch of wine people. <laughs> so they were, they were about to celebrate with some champagne, and, and you were fine with, with a glass of wine. That's right. But, yeah, no, that, 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 the, the first championship – the second championship was kind of – it was good to see it, and it was good to see it for Clyde. Yeah. Because, again, you talk about one of the all-time great guys, Clyde Drexler. I mean, no way we can do this, what we're doing here, and not mention Clyde Drexler. And, and Rudy, not only what he had been through, but he had spent his entire career as a Rocket, basically, you know, going through all the different formations, a player, assistant coach, and 
and everything like that. Ne- nearly killed on the court. Ne- nearly died. Could have been easily di- died from what happened with Kermit Washington. And it came with the heartbreak at U of H and, and all the stuff that he had been through to finally get to where he was. And he was, I mean, you didn't cover him probably as much, but he was a changed personality by the time the championship, you know, he was a different guy from what everybody said. He, he'd, he'd evolved dramatically. Although I have to say the young Akeem Olajuwon, for whatever reasons, he and I clicked. And I, 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 under, I understood his flaws, but very early on, uh, I thought there was a lot going on with Akeem, and you knew he was obviously going to be a great, great athlete. And again, getting back to Guy Lewis for a moment, yeah, I mean, he, he inherited incredible raw talent from the likes of Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon, but remember, nobody recruited Clyde Drexler other than Texas Tech, and Akeem didn't know how to play basketball until he met Guy Lewis. So does not, Guy not deserve a little credit for this evolution? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, no question about it. Yeah, the the, the Rockets championship. Uh, that that you know that was that was that was a highlight. I mean, it would tower over anything else. I mean, you know, watching Mike Scott throw the no hitter, you know, when the Astros clinched in '86 was pretty special. But of course, that it didn't lead to a championship. Uh, uh, Texans ultimately, you know, they haven't given us you know, anything remotely approaching that kind of a were you, were you at the pep rally? I, I don't know if I've ever asked you. Oh, no, because, you know, I, I was still in Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. You, you, you just, <laughs> we couldn't, uh, you know, I had a story to write. So you, so you missed both of them? You must oh, no, have... yeah, we didn't. You know, it, it, it was interesting. The, uh, what was interesting is you asked that question. Earlier in that season, I did actually fly on the charters. But in midseason, several of us made the, made the decision. We, we, even though people think we were freeloading on the charters, the newspaper was actually paying the commensurate fair at the time we thought it was more convenient to travel with the team ultimately the team didn't really want us there anymore and we didn't want to be there anymore because frequent flyer programs had begun so by by the time those playoffs started i was traveling on my own and i was starting to accumulate continental miles so no i was uh, about the time the pepper alley was going on in houston uh, i was using a screwdriver to try to knock some ice off of the door handle in the three river stadium parking lot that night to get into my car to get back to the hotel. That's how bad it was in Pittsburgh that night. In fact, we were, and one of my colleagues was driving, and we were driving back to the hotel about the time the pep rally was going on, and we had a piece of ice coming out of the Fort Pitt Tunnel. If anybody's ever been to Pittsburgh, and it's kind of an uphill, and you go through a tunnel, and there was a lot of ice in the tunnel. We got into the next stretch, and we hit something, and we went and did, did like three figure eights, but there was no traffic because nobody was stupid enough to be out. We were just trying to get back to the hotel. And spun around, spun around, thinking, okay, so our lives are going to end on the night that the Oilers have lost the AFC Championship game. This is the 78 game. The weather wasn't that bad the next year. But that had a lot to do with why they played so badly. I know I keep digressing. But so anyway, we stopped. There's a moment of silence. And uh, the guy driving goes, don't worry, I've got, I'm covered. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I got a little different memory that night than the people in Houston do. Before we, we close out, I, I got to ask you, because I was watching the incredible Wimbledon finals with oh, Djokovic go. and Federer a couple of weeks ago. There you go. Uh, as I'm watching, I couldn't help thinking of you because it's one of your favorite sports. And before we talk about that particular finals, how many Wimbledons did you end up covering over the years? 23. 23 Wimbledons. What's so special about that place? Well, it's uh, the same thing that would make uh, Fenway Park special, Yankee Stadium. Oh, it's, you know, the, the old Cotton Bowl. The Wimbledon I know, of course, is not the Wimbledon you see on TV today. The last year I covered it was the last year before they had a roof. So I went through all the interminable rain delays. And I can assure you there were a lot of nights when I hated Wimbledon because it was a pain in the neck to sit and sit and sit and see if they were going to play. And then you were getting, you know, starting mat- matches, you know, in the, practically in the dark. And But it's just, it's, it's just, you know, it, 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 you knew you were on hallowed ground. You know, there are just places that you know you're on hallowed ground. And that that's Wimbledon. I assume, because I think you, you, you mentioned this when you wrote the, your uh, retirement story, that your favorite 
Wimbledon, your favorite moment was that finals match between uh, Federer and Nadal that just went on and on. I had a lot, had a lot, had a lot of great memories from Wimbledon, but interestingly, uh, that 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 was also the last match I ever covered at Wimbledon. That that was it, and 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 I've never really wanted to go back because I didn't think it could be topped for a variety of reasons. It was extraordinary tennis. I didn't think necessarily think this final was extraordinary tennis, but it had the same. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. It had the same same you know feel. The tennis that day uh, was extraordinary, especially because they had to stop play twice for rain, and to be able to come back and 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 and. and Normally those matches got really sloppy, but those two guys were at the absolute height of their powers in 2008. And the fact that Nadal could beat him, beat Roger Federer, the greatest grass player ever on his court, made it all the more extraordinary. But what what made it personally special was the Wimbledon press office knew that it was my last Wimbledon. That you know, the, the, I told them the paper was not going, simply not going to send me anymore. In fact, as I recall, I actually paid for most of that one myself just because I wanted to say go say goodbye to a bunch of people who'd become friends, right? So yeah, I was I was out a few thousand bucks for that one. So it better by God have been a good final, right? <laughs> but they they knew that. So uh, about an hour before the match began, she came over and handed me a, handed me a, an envelope and said, uh, "You're going to be our guest at the Champions Ball tonight." So I said, "Okay," uh, and that that's incredible. And she said, "But you, but you do realize that you know it's black ties, so uh, there, there's a tailor waiting over here, and the tailor's going to fit you for a tuxedo, and it'll be ready for you when we're when and, and there's a, a car will take you to the hotel for the champ." For the thing, well, the match ends up ending about ten o'clock at night, and I am literally in the back seat of the uh, of the of, of the town car, putting a tuxedo on. I can't I can't can't get the cufflinks on, so I just shove the shove the sleeves up into my coat. I was able to get the get the tie on. Thank God, I think it was a, had to have been a snap on because I could have done done that in the dark. But pulled in pulled into the driveway of the Grove, Grosvenor Hotel. I think it was Grosvenor, not important. And and, and it's like twelve twenty, okay. And, and and places just you, know, you can imagine even at twelve twenty because the match had been so late. And I pulled in, got out of the car, and the car that pulled in behind me, uh, and the doll gets out. <laughs> so we we walked in together. <laughs> but extraordinary match, extraordinary uh, match, just you know amazing amazing talent, both of them. Uh, now we've got now we've got three, the big three. This match a couple weeks ago was still not on par with that one, but historic because of the fifth set tie uh, tiebreaker, which was unprecedented. Hell, these guys might have played to 70, 68 had they, had they not had this tiebreaker. Uh, but you, then you get back to the question, so who's the greatest player? Well, it's complicated because both Djokovic and Nadal have significantly better records head-to-head against Roger, and you discount that. Roger has won the most slams, but, of course, now it's not that different, 2018-16, with Nadal at 18 and Djokovic at 16. Djokovic, I think, will probably – uh, win 21. I think he will pass Roger. But when you talk about the greatest player that ever lived, it's important that people remember that tennis used to not allow professionals. And for many years, they didn't. Rod Laver won the Grand Slam, won all four major championships in 1962. He was banned from playing any of them until 1968. He didn't win his first two in 68, but then he won the Grand Slam in 1969. So he missed 22 out of 24 Grand Slams in his prime, and still won 11. So how many would he have run? I, I, I'm going to say Laver would be at 30 right now. And if you ask Rod Laver who the greatest tennis player who ever lived is, he doesn't hesitate for a moment. He says Lou Hode. But why, why have we never heard of Lou Hode? Because the minute he won a championship, he had to feed his family. He started barnstorming. Hode maybe won two majors, but he was done. Never, never. And he was too old in 68 when you know, tennis became a open sport. So forget the records. You know, I'm going to go with Rod Laver because I did cover Rod right at the end of his career. Current age, I don't know. I mean, I think Roger's game is the most beautiful. 
Dahls is the most impressive. He just he just blows you away as an athlete. And, and Djokovic is just a is a tough kid who gets who extracts every molecule of talent that he's got. I think he's the least talented of the three, but he might be the most mentally tough. So there you have it. What was your favorite personality t- uh, tennis players? Because these because like Federer and Nadal, it's been hard for me to latch onto these guys because they're they don't have necessarily that personality off the court or just a personality that you can attach to. They're they're very they're very seem like very good guys. You know, they handle themselves really well, but they're not that, you know, I grew up with the, the McEnroe's and the Connors, right. and I don't know if you had a chance to cover those guys, but who was the guy that the personality that really, that you kind of attached yourself to? Yeah, that's tough because they all had, you know, some, some of the guys who were really fun, fun to be around were not great tennis players and they were kind of clowns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you had McEnroe's hair, so maybe you well, sort, you sort know, of but, saw kinship there. Unfor- unfortunately, you know, well, I did cover John. I covered John at the U.S. Open. I, I wasn't doing Wimbledon and, and, and uh, when John and when John was still, I guess I covered one, John's, John's final against Agassi. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, McEnroe was, you know, he came across as a crazy man on the court, but he was actually, he's actually a really smart guy, you know, with a lot of demons, but, but he understood his demons and he could be a great interview. I mean, I tend to look, when you talk about athletes, I tend to look at athletes as how, were they, were they interesting conversationally or not just funny, you know, Boris Becker had a, had a deep intellectual streak that, of course, made him look like a clown because he was talking about reading Goethe. Nobody reads Goethe, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know, wins Wimbledon at the age of 17. So I, and then so that was, unfortunately that was the, the year before I started covering Wimbledon, but it was, it was that match that actually made me convince the post management to let me go. But so I, I missed it, but I did see Boris win the next year. Yvonne Lendl. Yeah. I went to the, uh, I was at the Super Bowl covering the Super Bowl with the Titans and the, and the Rams back in 2000. Were you at that one? It's, I went. I remember going to a, a restaurant at some point that weekend, and we looked over at the table, a couple tables over for us, and there was Boris Becker sitting at the table. Boris, Boris, yeah, Boris the baby boomer. Now, you know, and interestingly, the year he won Wimbledon, and, uh, and he actually played in a tournament that I attended, uh, a tournament out at River Oaks. But he played on a played on a backcourt and lost his first match and left, and he wins Wimbledon two months later. <laughs> that's unbelievable so yeah tennis you know i i inherited tennis uh, like i inherited hockey and said hey you know in those and it was the reason i became a tennis writer is because the nfl had no off season the minute the season ended you know there was no contact there were you saw the guys again they opening the training camp there were no otas nothing you know other than the draft nothing so they said hey we need a tennis writer do you mind covering tennis and i said yeah why not it looks fun i took up tennis because of it and that, that's how i ended up being known as a tennis guy but it was that was totally accidental too first tennis tournament i ever covered uh, i was sent down it was national father and son indoors and i talk about personalities and titanic names pancho gonzalez pancho gonzalez and his son are in the tournament so sports there said go down and interview pancho one of my old colleagues who had done a lot of tennis said good luck kid he's a jerk man <laughs> you you're going to you're you're, you're Trust me, you're going to get nothing out of Pancho Gonzalez. And I said, "Oh, this is great." This is my I start covering tennis, right? Well, you know what? Pancho was fabulous. Pancho was fabulous. We had a great conversation. I don't know. Maybe every now and then, I I kind of knew how to, you know, I guess hit the right buttons. Maybe accidentally, or I don't know if I knew it intuitively. But you know, every time I'd see Pancho at Wimbledon in the past, always, "Hey, man, how you doing? What's going on?" Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And a very funny story. And this will be my last one, my last segue I'll do to you. I'm on a train leaving Wimbledon one afternoon, a number of years later, and I sit down next to. Who else but the other Pancho, Pancho Segura, who I also got to know from playing in this father and son tournament. And, and, he, and he was staring into space. And I sat down next to him. I said, hey, Pancho, hey, it's Dale Robertson from Houston. How you doing? He kind of looked at me. He stuck out his hand. And 
and just you know like 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 he'd seen a ghost. And I, I said, uh, "You okay?" And I, I actually afraid he was having some kind of a medical thing because he was getting pretty pretty old at that point. He says, "Pancho died." And he was talking about Gonzalez. He just found out. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, it's been like I said, been a long, strange ride. Only thing, only thing I, I am certain I would have changed is I would have tried to fix it with Dan before things got weird. But uh, I have to say, a lot of good came out of that too. And uh, you know, what don't kill you makes you stronger. Before we wrap up, you're retired. So what do you do? You uh, you're going to spend some time in France, right? Many years ago, I because I was doing so much international sports coverage, it actually made sense to build a house in France. And the Chronicle benefited because I wasn't coming back to Houston. I would do like the last five to seven days of Roland Garros, French Open, and then do Wimbledon, and do the British Open. And by the time you've done all that, you, you've been over there for, you know. And so I, you did some Tour de France as well, right? Well, it, it, a lot of people think actually having a permanent tie to France stemmed from the Tour, but it didn't. I mean, actually, that, that, was, that was just kind of became an ancillary benefit. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up building a house over there 20 years ago in partnership with a couple of Houston friends. And uh, truthfully, today, we will actually live part-time there probably four months a year. And so I was there for three months just recently. I only got back last week. And people were saying, hey, how's your vacation going? And I say, guys... It's not vacation if you're mowing your own grass, picking weeds, washing the car, you know, dealing with the tax authorities. Hot water heater went out today. Can I, can I get a plumber on the phone <laughs> and, and talk to him in France, tell him what's going on? And so, Is your French good? You- yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, pas mal, pas mal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get in a rhythm. What part of this? Well, what's, what's cool about it is we're actually, we're actually in, in Tour, de France, uh, Tour de France country. As you and I are talking today, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know when, when people would actually hear this, but tomorrow, meaning tomorrow, the Tour de France will pass within 10 minutes of my front door and will literally pass in front of the house of another Houston friend of mine who's there right now and will be standing in, in his front yard watching the Tour de France go by. Now, how cool is that? I assume you're going to be there at some point uh, regularly during well, that time. I, Robert, I have to tell you, it, it, the, covering the Tour was the single greatest experience of my sports riding career. The hardest, the most frustrating, the most bedeviling, but ultimately because it was so hard and so difficult and so fraught with controversies and you know, and uh, dealing with the Armstrong uh, mess, and but because of the challenges involved, and, and but what it enabled me to do, and the relationships I developed, and the things I got to see, it it's just it's off the charts. You know, we could go on, we could do a whole show just on my memories of that, not necessary. So, but it is so difficult. I I, I cannot see myself ever doing anything other than standing in my friend's front yard and watching the tour. Oh yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying at some point you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be spending your time in France when the tour de France. Well, you know, I I don't know because I kind of like, it's a little complicated. This, you know, I came back this year for some kind of thing, you know, some personal reasons, but I guess I could see myself there in July, but you know, you know, it's important to, you know, I, I tell people, I say, look, you know, I don't necessarily miss Houston, although I love Houston, but you can't, not miss your friends, so I miss my friends. So I'm I'm yeah. delighted to be back. And here we had this nice, cool morning today, and it's almost sufferable, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Houston's a great city. Houston will always be my home. But uh, it's it, Houston's flat. Uh, there are mountains where we are, and and I, I, nothing I like better than getting on, getting on my bike for three hours and riding up them. So that's that's basically what I'm going to do at least four months of the year: is just get on my bike and climb mountains in France. Yeah, and you came here on your bike, just so people know that he came to <laughs> he came to see me and do this on his bike. So he's he's serious about it. Um, yeah, that sounds yeah France. I love France, so that that sounds fantastic. You know, and, and I'd say we made some great French friendships there. You know, I I always like to say. 
we fell in love with a place. It is a gorgeous place because I like mountains. I grew up in El Paso. El Paso was cut by the Franklin Mountains, so I've got mountains in my blood. But it's our place in France now is truly about the friends and the people there. It's not about a place. It's about the people, just like Houston is. You know, I'd be any place where I have my friends. So we're going to be happy in both continents. Who is your best friend that you've made over all your years uh, working in, in the newspaper business? Um, like with the Chronicle or the Post? John McClain. John, yeah. Yeah, well, John, and John and I, because John and I have this wonderful history of going head to head. First met John when he was assigned uh, as a backup and to cover the Oilers to the regular guy in training camp of 77. We hit it off just immediately. You know, I, I'm not sure why. And we were both uh, trying to figure out tennis, so we ended up playing some tennis. And uh, we, we became great friends. And, uh, and let me close with one story about John. Well, I, I could close with 100 yeah. stories <laughs> about John. About John yeah. <laughs> so the night before he's, he's heading to San Angelo in 1980, this is the Kenny Stabler season. That was his first season as the beat guy. Uh, we went out to dinner with our wives. John looked at me across. I mean, that's the kind of friendship we had. It was like, you know, we're, we're, and it kind of became a little bit of a tradition. You know, we've, we've done that a lot since. Uh, but I was at the Post. John was at the Chronicle. He's taking me on now, right? And, and he looked at me and says, I'm going to write, I can't do the McLean accent, but I'll kind of try. I said, I'm going to write three stories for every story you write. You're, you're going to hate working against me. And <laughs> he looks across and says, John, no, you know you're not. You're going to, two weeks into training camp, you're going to be hiding, under, you're going to be in the fetal position under the bed. So, but, but damn if he didn't try to do it. He lasted about two weeks. And if I said, I, ah, God, I hate training camp. So, yeah, we had, you know, yeah, we had a great relationship. And, and truthfully, I'm not sure I ever would have gone to the Chronicle without John McLean because the Chronicle and the Post, uh, you know, Post was heading into a bad patch, you know, kind of the final stages. In the summer of 1990, I was dealing with a managing editor over there who did something to me that just, you know, not details aren't important, but it, it, it was, just wasn't right. And until then, I was totally loyal to the Post. And I called John and said, John, it's time. Can you, can you talk to the guys down there? And, and, and his response was, I love it, he says, you can't come to the Chronicle. You're a legend at the Houston Post. And I said, "Yeah, well, that may be true, but would you would you may would, would you talk talk?" He talked to the sports editor Dan Cunningham at the time, and and Tony Peterson, the managing editor, and gosh, Dick Johnson. I mean, you know, these were all guys that John John was very good at cultivating people, and and so yeah, about about three or four weeks later, got a phone call and said, "Well, you want why don't you come down and talk?" And so if John hadn't done that. Uh, there's probably no chance I would have gone to the Chronicle because they they weren't they were trying not to hire Post people, frankly, at the time. But a lot of post people are also trashing the Chronicle on a regular basis. I did not do that. I was I get points for being fairly smart in that regard. And then at that point, the Chronicle had become a better newspaper. And, of course, they had infinitely more resources and all the things that I could do there that I couldn't do at the Post anymore. So there we are. So that's that's John. He's not the general to me. He's Johnny. I call him Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I was just going to say, I've got to say that I, I, I've covered Houston sports now for 18 years and, and, and I've dealt with a lot of the people in the media and you know the, the great thing is is you and john who maybe should have the biggest egos of, of all the houston media because you guys have been around here and been through so much uh you guys have always been the most generous the, the nicest not only just humble but you know i see you guys uh just be so polite to everybody and 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 that has been such a big thing for me and uh it, it's wonderful because you know for somebody like me a lot of these people that are in Houston media, they didn't grow up here. For for me, it, it's it's more important because you know you guys were the guys that I grew up kind of admiring and and watching and, and reading and everything like that. So uh, it's just been fantastic to get a chance to work with you over the last few years. You know, I, I miss you. Be I miss being around you. 
And uh, it's just such a, it's a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you when I did over the years and to, to do this with you has been fantastic. And I just can't thank you enough and congratulate you on a fantastic career. Thanks oh, for doing this. Um, I'm blushing and dimpling, Robert, but I also have to say I'm flattered that you were interested. So thank you very much. And the, the reason John and I became those guys is because the people before us did the same thing. They're the ones I remember. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.